Well, we are uh, in a sermon series recognizing the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Thank you, Martin Luther, for celebrating our confessions of faith. And I'm grateful to Hannah Coe, who launched our series as we thought about that famous confession in Matthew 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then last week, Melissa Hatfield uh, moved us on to the second great confession in Scripture from John chapter 20, as Thomas cried out, My Lord and my God. And this morning we're going to look at that third great confession of faith that is embedded in Scripture, Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I want to read that Scripture to you, and I want you to listen very prayerfully. And if you want to use the Pew Bibles, they are in front of you, and the page number is listed for you in the bulletin. It will also be on the screen. And I invite you to stand as I read aloud from God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father, the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. October 31st, 1517. In just a few weeks, exactly 500 years ago, the German monk Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door asserting that salvation is not by works, not by our performance of holy deeds, not by keeping rules, but salvation, forgiveness, a relationship with God, eternal life. They are realities because of God's grace through faith and that we could never earn that. And, and there began, unwittingly, Luther didn't realize he was doing it, the unrolling of the Protestant Reformation, and we share in that rich heritage today, and we're very, very blessed by it. And we also share in that great confession of faith uh, that the Apostle Paul asserted, that Luther would assert, that we all agree with Jesus Christ is Lord. Did you know that's the earliest Christian creed? That's the earliest Christian creed. That embedded phrase was the way Christians identified themselves in the early first century, the way, the way that believers uh, uh, confess their faith is to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we share that celebration this morning, and we share that confession of our faith. Now, it's interesting that this confession of faith actually uh, bubbled up to the surface in the Philippian letter because of church conflict. There were some people in the church at Philippi who weren't getting along. And Paul was trying to get them to understand that there was something bigger than their own egos, bigger than their own 
issues, bigger than their own being right. And then he sort of just burst out into song. And this, these verses, 6 through 11, most Bible scholars believe this is an embedded Christian hymn. This was probably a hymn, a song that was well known in the early churches. It was either sung or it was recited from memory or it was both sung and recited so that when Paul began to talk about uh, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. As he started that it would be like me in the middle of a sermon starting to say the words of Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so or Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and invite the congregation to join in because we would all know that. It was Paul's way of saying there's something more than our own egos. Notice how in the second chapter of Philippians, he says that Jesus so graciously gave up all of his rights and power and privileges. He so graciously laid them aside and suffered and died for us, putting aside any thought of selfishness to think of others. And so Paul makes that point. And isn't it interesting that even though he's talking about eternity when he finishes this great passage of Scripture, at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, even though he ends up talking about eternity, it all starts with a conversation about something very practical and mundane like quarreling or irritations or feuds or fussing. Our confession of faith helps us in every conceivable life situation. But you know, at the heart of it is this, is this acknowledgement of our selfishness. Paul was a realist. Jesus was a realist. Our selfishness. And uh, I'm glad that Teresa uh, talked about the selfie today in children's time, because the selfie, the, the photo that you take with yourself and maybe somebody else with arm outstretched or the, or the long uh, selfie stick, that selfie has come to sort of define the essence of our culture today. Uh, it, it's this consumption that we have. We're just so consumed with ourselves, our comforts, our rights, our privileges, and, and, and it's sort of overwhelming. And the selfie is a way of sort of capturing the essence of our, of our culture. I saw in the paper this week that there was a paramedic in Florida who was sentenced to jail time because he had been taking selfies with patients in the ambulance as the, as the patient was being transported. And he and his co-worker were in some kind of sick competition to see... Uh, the, who, who would have the strangest and the most bizarre selfie with an unconscious patient in an ambulance? And he was convicted of a crime, and he was jailed. Now, your selfishness and my selfishness may not manifest itself in just that way, but we have it, and it's deeply ingrained. I heard the other day of a group of mental health professionals who were gathering for a conference, and the leader began the conference by asking each person to take the sheet of paper in front of them and to list 
three things you do well, three things that you're gifted at, that you really excel at. And after every person had written down three things, he said, now, go back into those three things and write down an occasion in which your giftedness, the thing you do well, was used to hurt another person. To hurt another person. And the room got really quiet as people began to realize that sometimes our greatest gifts and talents are the things that we can selfishly turn and use to harm and to wound other people. Selfishness is deep embedded in our nature. And here's a quote by Martin Luther. Uh, He said, The unwillingness of the sinner to be regarded as a sinner is the final form of sin. Isn't that the truth? Now think about that. Our unwillingness to be called a sinner is itself the final manifestation of our sin. It's our pride that says, I don't have a problem. She's got a problem. He's got a problem, but I don't have a problem. My only problem is you don't know you have a problem, right? And think about all the ways that that's true. The very experience of salvation happens when we admit to God we're sinners. Where we come to see that that is destroying our lives and enslaving us and we repent. And by faith we open our heart to what Jesus Christ has done for us. We could not do for ourselves. It's not works we do. And it's only selfishness and pride that would make us think we could earn our salvation. It's a gift we receive by faith from God. But until we come to that point, it can't happen. Now, here's a real interesting irony and twist. One of the great principles of the Reformation is the priesthood of all believers. And Baptists have historically latched onto that and been champions of what we call soul competency, the competency of the individual soul to have our own relationship with God. We don't need an overseer. We don't need an intermediary other than Jesus. We are free to develop our own relationship with God. A beautiful truth. And yet selfishness can even creep in and turn that on its head and make it something perverse. And here's the way it happens. We take the priesthood of all believers, my right to a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and we turn it into individualism and narcissism. We start talking about, well, the church exists for my needs. I'm a consumer and I'm going to shop around till I find the best offer in town. Or following Jesus is about my fulfillment. Or I've got what I need. You need to take care of yourself. Or even in the larger culture, we hear so much noise about my rights, not thinking about the marginalized, the people whose human rights and civil rights are being violated as long as my rights are recognized We don't seem too interested in anybody else. Selfishness even creeps into that great truth of priesthood of all believers. 
And the only solution to such selfishness is to practice and live our confession of faith, Jesus Christ is Lord, and no one else and nothing else is Lord of my life. To practice that and live into it daily. Now, let me tell you how that, how that sounded in the first century, the best we can reconstruct. How that would sound on the ears of the culture of the first Christians. In Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, there were lots of deities, lots of gods, small g-o-d-s. And those small g-gods, deities, were to be addressed as Lord. And then, of course, there was Caesar, the emperor, the ruler of the empire. The confession of the Roman citizens was Caesar is Lord. So that for a Christian to say Jesus is Lord was to commit treason, sedition. To claim Jesus is Lord was to say that Caesar was not. And then add to that mix, the Jews of the first century were offended when Christians said Jesus is Lord because the Jews were taught there's only one God, the Lord God Yahweh. And for Christians to call Jesus Lord was to make Jesus equal with God and the Jews believed that that was blasphemy. So it's nice to know that the first century Christians were equal opportunity offenders. They just ticked off everybody. The pagans who had their deities, the Romans who worshipped Caesar, and the Jews who could never, ever accept the incarnation of Jesus Christ as God's Son. I have a good friend who now pastors in uh, Texas, but years ago when the Soviet Union first fell, he, uh, he made a trip to Russia, no longer the Soviet Union, but Russia. And in the middle of his sermon, this was the early 90s, in the middle of his sermon, he had in his manuscript, and he said the phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord. And the moment that phrase was translated, in mass, the entire congregation stood, whoosh, and it scared him to death. He thought they were going to come after him, or he thought he'd said something wrong. This noise of all these people just instantly standing but it's because they had been worshiping in a clandestine way all the years of their oppression. But the one act of defiance that they could carry out in their private secret worship was that every time the phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, was spoken, they stood in, a, in respect and reverence and worship. They were saying, the czar is not Lord, the Soviet premier is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Just like the early Christians said, Caesar is not Lord. No political leader is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And so, for us today, the confession of faith, Jesus is Lord, means that my pride is not Lord. It means that having the last word and always winning the argument 
are not Lord. It means being popular and having status in the community are not Lord of my life. It means my possessions, my hobbies, my favorite sports activity. Those things are not Lord of my life. My pet political ideology is not supreme Lord in my life. Jesus is Lord. I'm not sure we have lived into the confession, Jesus is Lord, as much as we think we have lived into that confession. And the confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, is not optional equipment. You know, somehow I think in our revivalistic culture of the post-World War II all the way through the 1990s, Baptists somehow thought that Jesus being Lord was optional equipment. We could take him as Savior, but not as Lord. Not optional equipment. It's not like, now that you have your new iPad, would you like a nice shiny case to go with it? Jesus as Lord is not an optional confession. It is the heart of the Christian message. It's the culmination of the mission of Jesus to assert his lordship over all. It is at the very center of our confession of faith. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so with the Apostle Paul and with Martin Luther and with every other Christian across the world today, we confess that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.